Trapcast Express. Tratcast Express, it's Thursday, April 19th, 2018. Continuing now from our last episode, we turn again to Gaudete et Exultate, the pseudo-apostolic exhortation released by Jorge Bergoglio a mere 10 days ago. And yet it seems like forever ago because so much has happened in the meantime, right? 10 days is eons in Bergoglio time. So, Gaudete et Exultate. One thing we can say for sure about this document is that it is tendentious. Even where what it says is not objectionable in itself, it is very often one-sided, and it basically just recycles various pet topics that Francis has preached about in the last five years, and it minimizes, eclipses, or ignores whatever contradicts those pet ideas, as we'll see shortly in this very podcast. All right, let's continue now. Paragraph number 52. Francis says, quote, The Church has repeatedly taught that we are justified not by our own works or efforts, but by the grace of the Lord who always takes the initiative. Unquote. Yeah, all of a sudden, huh? Well, it's just too funny that a few days ago, on April 15th, Francis said about a deceased atheist that he was sure that he was in heaven because he had allowed his children to be baptized. How's that for teaching that we are justified by our works, even apart from grace? And you probably know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the incident with the little Roman boy whose atheist father had passed away. So yeah, the same guy that teaches that good atheists go to heaven, here teaches in his exhortation that we are not justified by our works, but by grace. Well, it's really unfortunate that throughout the entire document, with all its footnotes and citations, Francis forgot to quote Hebrews 11.6, quote, Without faith, it is impossible to please God, unquote. There can be no sanctifying grace in the soul without supernatural faith. Now, it is the height of irony that Francis writes in Gaudete et Exultate that our actions sometimes belie our words, by which we profess orthodoxy, but don't practice it. Here's what he says in number 50, quote, Underneath our orthodoxy, our attitudes might not correspond to our talk about the need for grace, and in specific situations, we can end up putting little trust in it, unquote. Really now? Like, for example, when being asked about the salvation of atheists? Oh, but that's not what Francis had in mind here, is it? No, he was, of course, condemning evil traditionalists, whom he falsely characterizes as Pelagians in his exhortation, when now the whole world has seen that he is the Pelagian, because Pelagians believe in salvation by works, apart from grace, just as Francis expressed when he said to the little boy, that he is sure that his unbelieving father is in heaven because he was, quote, good. Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the most Pelagian of them all? But there's more in paragraph 50 that we need to look at. Jorge the heretic says, quote, Unless we can acknowledge our concrete and limited situation, we will not be able to see the real and possible steps that the Lord demands of us at every moment 
once we are attracted and empowered by his gift. Grace acts in history. Ordinarily, it takes hold of us and transforms us progressively. If we reject this historical and progressive reality, we can actually refuse and block grace, even as we extol it by our words." Ooh, flowery and profound-sounding words that he's using here. The passage is conveniently ambiguous, of course, so that you can read several things into or out of it if you want. It seems to me that what he's intending to do here is provide more putatively magisterial underpinnings to his blasphemous teaching in Amoris Laetitia number 303 that God may very well want you to commit a mortal sin in your concrete situation, and that by doing so, you can gradually progress towards holiness of life, towards greater virtue. That's what he's trying to do here, I think, and of course he wraps it up in really shiny terminology, talking about acknowledging our limits and God's grace acting in history and it attracting, empowering, and transforming us. Man, if that doesn't take your breath away, it just sounds so much better than saying, well, sometimes you're just going to sin and that's all right. In paragraph number 49, Francis accuses those supposed Pelagians of failing to realize that, quote, not everyone can do everything, unquote. And that is a quote taken from the 13th century doctor of the church, St. Bonaventure, a contemporary of St. Thomas Aquinas. Whoa, look, Francis teaches traditional doctrine. He's a scholastic. He's conservative. Yeah, well, not so fast. Two things here. First, St. Bonaventure's Not Everyone Can Do Everything refers to the fact that we ought not to expect those who are beginners in the spiritual life to be rich in virtue. Rather, we need to understand that they are still easily prone to vice because grace builds on nature and doesn't replace it. Therefore, because they are weak, they need to keep themselves away from certain people or situations in which they can easily fall into sin. And that's what St. Bonaventure is saying here with the not everyone can do everything quotation. In fact, St. Bonaventure quotes a few Bible passages in that context, including Romans 15.1, which says, quote, Now we that are stronger ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves, unquote. St. Bonaventure, then, was not saying what Francis is hinting at, namely that some people just can't help sinning, so they get a pass. Secondly, notice how hypocritical Francis is being. When it comes to his favorite topic of permitting adultery, Francis comes up with, well, not everyone can do everything, so shut up and stop judging. On the other hand, look at what he says in paragraph 101, of the same exhortation, Gaudete Exultate. Quote, The other harmful ideological error is found in those who find suspect the social engagement of others, seeing it as superficial, worldly, secular, materialist, communist, or populist. Or they relativize it, as if there are other, more important matters, or the only thing that counts is one particular ethical issue or cause that they themselves defend. 
Our defense of the innocent unborn, for example, needs to be clear, firm, and passionate, for at stake is the dignity of a human life, which is always sacred and demands love for each person, regardless of his or her stage of development. Equally sacred, however, are the lives of the poor, those already born, the destitute, the abandoned, and the underprivileged, the vulnerable, infirm, and elderly exposed to covert euthanasia, the victims of human trafficking, new forms of slavery, and every form of rejection. We cannot uphold an ideal of holiness that would ignore injustice in a world where some revel, spend with abandon, and live only for the latest consumer goods even as others look on from afar, living their entire lives in abject poverty." Unquote. And notice what Francis has done here. Suddenly he is concerned about living a holistic moral life. He could have just said, Kudos to all those defending the lives of the unborn. All other life issues depend on this most fundamental right, the right to be born. Therefore, by fighting abortion, people are implicitly also fighting for all other worthy causes in defense of human life. Right? I mean, he could have said that. But he didn't say that. He didn't. Likewise, to those who object that people shouldn't be so one-sided in their defense of life by focusing only or mainly on abortion, he could have said, well, not everyone can do everything. But again, he didn't do that, did he? Why is it that Francis only ever tells pro-lifers not to focus too much on their cause, and that they must also focus on other human life issues. Why doesn't he ever tell those helping migrants, for example, that that's not enough either, and that they really also need to get their act together and work to end abortion? No, he never says that, does he? And that was a consideration brought up by Giuseppe Nardi, by the way, a Vatican journalist in Germany. Likewise, if we look at Gaudete et Exultate, paragraph 19, Francis says, quote, Each saint is a mission planned by the Father to reflect and embody, at a specific moment in history, a certain aspect of the gospel, unquote. And yet, when it comes to pro-lifers, Francis is quick to tell them that they better also be recycling their soda cans and welcome illegal immigrants, else they're not authentic Christians. Nothing there about reflecting and embodying a particular aspect of the gospel at a specific moment in time. See, and that's what I mean when I say that Gaudete et Exultate is one-sided and tendentious. It places undue emphasis on certain points Bergoglio is particularly fond of, and thereby it distorts reality as a whole. I'm sorry for skipping around a bit here in the document, but that's just the best job I can do here. Uh, next excerpt of Gaudete et Exultate that we want to look at is paragraphs 43 and 44. The Frankster says this, quote, It is not easy to grasp the truth that we have received from the Lord, and it is even more difficult to express it. So we cannot claim that our way of understanding this truth authorizes us to exercise a strict supervision over others' lives. Here I would note that in the church there legitimately coexist different ways of interpreting many aspects of doctrine and Christian life, 
In their variety, they help to express more clearly the immense riches of God's word. It is true that for those who long for monolithic body of doctrine, guarded by all and leaving no room for nuance, this might appear as undesirable and leading to confusion. In effect, doctrine, or better, our understanding and expression of it, is not a closed system, devoid of the dynamic capacity to pose questions, doubts, inquiries. The questions of our people, their suffering, their struggles, their dreams, their trials, and their worries all possess an interpretational value that we cannot ignore if we want to take the principle of the Incarnation seriously. Their wondering helps us to wonder. Their questions question us. Unquote. B.S. And I don't mean Barbara Streisand. This is typical modernist bovine manure. I've got news for you folks. Doctrine is a closed system. It's very closed. And the struggles and dreams of our people, their suffering, their high blood pressure or whatever, has nothing to do with anything as regards God's revelation. I don't have anything to do with the incarnation either. And by the way, doubt, doubt is contrary to the virtue of faith. The Catechism of the Council of Trent and its treatment of Article 1 of the Creed says, quote, Faith, therefore, must exclude not only all doubt, but all desire for demonstration, unquote. Now, what about what Francis says here, though, that it's just so difficult to express God's revealed truth and that there are always different ways to understand and explain it. Oh, sorry. No, 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 no. Of course, Francis is shrewd enough to say not exactly that. No, he says it's many different aspects of doctrine that are legitimately interpreted differently. You know, like the aspect that says that thou shalt not commit adultery actually comes with a divine footnote, but it really depends on your concrete situation, that aspect. So, well, this whole thing about doctrine on the one hand and the way to express it or understand it on the other is a foundational error, or I should say half-truth, of the new theology, the nouvelle theologie. And Pope Pius XII blew it out of the water in his excellent 1950 encyclical against the modernism that was resurfacing during his pontificate, Humani Generis. In paragraphs 14, 15, and 16 of that encyclical, the sovereign pontiff teaches as follows, quote, In theology, some want to reduce to a minimum the meaning of dogmas, and to free dogma itself from terminology long established in the Church and from philosophical concepts held by Catholic teachers to bring about a return in the explanation of Catholic doctrine to the way of speaking used in Holy Scripture, and by the fathers of the church. They cherish the hope that when dogma is stripped of the elements which they hold to be extrinsic to divine revelation, it will compare advantageously with the dogmatic opinions of those who are separated from the unity of the church, and that in this way they will gradually arrive at a mutual assimilation of Catholic dogma with the tenets of the dissidents. 
Moreover, they assert that when Catholic doctrine has been reduced to this condition, a way will be found to satisfy modern needs that will permit of dogma being expressed also by the concepts of modern philosophy, whether of immanentism or idealism or existentialism or any other system. Some more audacious affirm that this can and must be done because they hold that the mysteries of faith are never expressed, listen, by truly adequate concepts, but only by approximate and ever-changeable notions, in which the truth is to some extent expressed, but is necessarily distorted. Wherefore, they do not consider it absurd, but altogether necessary, that theology should substitute new concepts in place of the old ones in keeping with the various philosophies which in the course of time it uses as its instruments, so that it should give human expression to divine truths in various ways, which are even somewhat opposed but still equivalent, as they say. They add that the history of dogmas consists in the reporting of the various forms in which revealed truth has been clothed, forms that have succeeded one another in accordance with the different teachings and opinions that have arisen over the course of the centuries. It is evident from what we have already said that such tentatives not only lead to what they call dogmatic relativism, but that they actually contain it. The contempt of doctrine commonly taught and of the terms in which it is expressed strongly favor it. Everyone is aware that the terminology employed in the schools and even that used by the teaching authority of the church itself is capable of being perfected and polished, and we know also that the church itself has not always used the same terms in the same way. It is also manifest that the Church cannot be bound to every system of philosophy that has existed for a short space of time. Nevertheless, the things that have been composed through common effort by Catholic teachers over the course of the centuries to bring about some understanding of dogma are certainly not based on any such weak foundation. These things are based on principles and notions deduced from a true knowledge of created things. In the process of deducing, this knowledge, like a star, gave enlightenment to the human mind through the church. Hence it is not astonishing that some of these notions have not only been used by the ecumenical councils, but even sanctioned by them, so that it is wrong to depart from them." Unquote. And that right there, ladies and gentlemen, condemns all of them. Bergoglio, Ratzinger, Müller, and the, the whole neo-modernist cabal that Vatican City is currently infested with. And there's much more to quote from that encyclical, but of course we don't have all day here. So, yeah, make sure you read this beautiful encyclical in full if you haven't done so already. It's called Humani Generis of Pope Pius Twelfth, and it was published on August 12th, 1950. You can find it at papalencyclicals.net. All right, I really wanted to finish going over Gaudete et Exultate today, but there's more to discuss still, and uh, we'll have to leave that for the next Express episode in just a few days. Tratcast Express is a production of Novos Ordo Watch. Check us out at tradcast.org, and if you like what we're doing, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution at novosordowatch.org slash donate.